there is no border now. For example, yeah, the same company has the operation in Indonesia and Liberia. The same product, same company, only different name. Yeah? And the same product trading has the operation in Indonesia, in Asia, and Africa. Yeah? And the same company still talking about the, his sustainability standard in international market. Welcome to Data Dialogues, a podcast that brings together multiple perspectives to look at a single issue. This season, we are looking at Indonesia's one map policy, a decade-long ongoing effort to resolve land conflict with data. We're also looking at the limitations of modern cartography and indigenous struggles over being seen, struggles that assert, we were born here, we're living here, and we'll die here. I'm your host, Madhuri Karuk. In our last episode, we get into what happens when mapping is stuck in bureaucratic limbo. In order to document harm from rampant resource extraction and loss of livelihoods, communities are increasingly turning to monitoring their environments. You'll hear from lawyer Andiko Mansayo, policy expert Anne Sophie Kindrose, and several others you'll no doubt recognize from earlier in the season. We ended our last episode wondering what alternatives to traditional maps might be out there. Alternatives that can encompass multiple forms of knowing and relating to a landscape. The Marind in Papua, for one, are still figuring out how they can work with maps in a way that helps them secure their land and community from the clutches of palm oil without losing their sense of what it means to be Marind. For advocacy, for accountability, for recognition, Maps remain powerful tools, and we've spent this entire season looking at the institutional dimension of mapping through Indonesia's One Map Initiative and the Counter Mapping Initiative, the movement spearheaded by community networks like JKPP, where maps, what makes it in, what gets left out, the scales, the level of accuracy, the methods used, all of this is very much a part of mapping as an active terrain of struggle. It's a struggle because the benefits from data transparency are not evenly distributed. So once you have mapped a piece of land and, you know, ensured that social accuracy complements spatial data, community-created maps are never guaranteed official recognition. Data transparency doesn't consign politics to the rearview mirror. We heard from Park Effendi Buhing in episode 4 about the overlap between district administration and the highest echelons of PTSML, the palm oil company that's threatening the survival of his community. That overlap 
has allowed PTSML to acquire licenses for its plantations with sinister ease, while the Kinipan community's recognition process is still held up. And the community-created maps are yet to be incorporated into the official national database. So this is politics. This is politics that data transparency cannot exceed. But there is something that communities in Indonesia are doing to complement mapping and account for all the incremental changes that are taking place in landscapes, including resource extraction. And this is community-based monitoring, or CBM. So you cannot map something that's been taken away, right, that no longer exists. Land that was once forested, but are now rows upon rows of oil palm. But with monitoring, you can make room for community perceptions of these changes, right? These perceptions of harm and how these connect to longer histories of colonialism and erasure and exploitation. I reached out to environmental lawyer Andiko Mansayo to talk about monitoring and mapping what they have in common, and how they differ. The mapping talking about who owned the location. This is mapping about the right, yeah, uh, related with land right or use right in this location. This is the tenure. But the CBM, uh, one step after the mapping, yeah, how to monitor the resources uh, within the map to bring the some prosperity Uh, food security and livelihood to community. Now, in Indonesia, the mapping already success to get some recognition from government. This is still running and CBM coming to monitor all, including the how using the map, what is the map, uh, what do you use. Now, we need some mapping about the condition today yeah? how strong the company sustainable condition and uh, how strong the company protection about the food security uh, and livelihood and through the map we can look what is the area for community food security and livelihood together So if mapping is about establishing who owns what on a piece of land or, say, tenure, monitoring goes further. It's the step that comes after mapping, as Mansayo puts it. Monitoring is about checking in. Are the resources on a piece of land bringing security and bringing livelihood to the people living there? Conflicts between companies and communities can emerge over overlapping land concessions or, say, pollution caused by resource extraction activities or diminished groundwater levels, even as companies pursue sustainable certification for their palm oil or timber or whatever resource it is. The community is still not happy about his operation around the community. But the community has the strong question, why 
even the company already has the certification of sustainable uh, product but in the same time the community still lost his right and there is problem in community Mansayo has been involved in community-based monitoring work with his legal organization ASM. ASM is based in Batan, in central Java, and they partner with communities who are stuck in long-standing conflicts with companies. From this background, ASM try to develop the community-based monitoring on food security and livelihood. Why food security and livelihood? This is the last frontier of debate about anything, including conflict tenure. The community has the problem about the food security and livelihood because there is some restriction through the COVID situation. Mansayo's community-based monitoring exposes companies' stated sustainability standards with the actual hunger and precariousness that communities face when they're forced into landlessness by resource extraction. In Mansayo's experience, monitoring also brings companies to the negotiating table. No one can evade a demand for accountability that centers food security, he says. You heard extensively from policy advocate Anne-Sophie on episodes one and two. Here's Anne-Sophie on why the right to food is impossible to disregard. Actually, you know, this methodology is focusing on the right to food and livelihood. Why the right to food and livelihood? Because this is a basic right. You know, you cannot talk about any other right if right to food and livelihood is not being respected. And no company can disregard this. So it, it's built along uh, the right to food and livelihood of the communities. But then, of course, this can be impacted by, you know, mining activities, uh, infrastructures, logging, uh, plantation, whatever. So you can adjust the methodology. Ideally community and company using this uh, methodology to ensure the protection of uh, food security and livelihood for community around the company operation. What is the benefit for company? Company can get the some position to, to make effective his complaint mechanism. And from the community position, the community can get space to or negotiate his problem in the ground. In the ideal situation, the first step, the community and company will make some agreement to make together monitoring about that. The most important thing about community-based monitoring is its insistence on believing communities without placing the burden of proving harm on affected communities, right? Or demanding that communities start acquiring elaborate scientific expertise or build capacity in collecting scientific evidence themselves. Monitoring foregrounds communities' perceptions of harm. I am not 
teach the scientific evidence to community because this is the bottleneck all strategy of monitoring because this is the weapon from other parties to broken the community monitoring community cannot doesn't have enough capacity to bring the scientific yeah i try to protect the community perception this is the difference if we talking about the community perception about the environmental damage yeah for example yeah community only coming with photo or physical situation and story yeah and i try to back up the story the company has the obligation to bring the scientific and many kind of evidence to answer the perception of community this is the rule yeah cbm not talking about the scientific uh, evidence for community the company has the obligation about scientific uh, evidence to answer the community monitoring let's replay that the company has the obligation to have scientific evidence for community monitoring not the community the company community should not have to prove harm companies have to refute the existence of harm and this is such an important shift right because it acknowledges the imbalance in power relations between communities and companies so if companies want to hang on to their sustainability certificates and licenses they are the ones who must prove innocence it is their actions on community land that has to be monitored so if fish is say missing from the river because the water is polluted by the runoff from timber plantations that too is the responsibility of the timber company to fix this emphasis on redressal on food security and livelihoods it's a strategic use of data and sophie sees mansayo's approach as a mix of law and activism powered by data the work they are doing is really you know supporting communities and building empowering communities to engage with company because there is such a huge imbalance of power between communities very often you know they are isolated they are already weak because they have been losing part of their territory and you have this company and you know they have a very strong legal department and lawyers and this is very intimidating right so you need to kind of uh leverage the ground and build the capacities of the communities and part of this empowerment are data data are very very important data about the territories the maps but also all the data that you collect through community based monitoring about all the uh, changes all the uh, impacts suffered by the community with data from community based monitoring you approach the divide in resources between communities and corporations differently and instead of trying to bridge that power imbalance monitoring calls out corporations for their unkept promises this is not new this is a strategy that has been used for a long time the naming and shaming right and there are lots of uh, international organizations engaging into this and what happens in is usually you have a europe based or a us based organization that would be very 
come with a very strong voice, make a lot of noise, shame the companies, and then the companies start to open up. But what we try to do actually in Indonesia with this community-based monitoring is to shorten the big, you know, this big uh, circle that it has to go international first. What we try to do is actually to convince the company that it's in its own interest Mm -hmm. to avoid the big campaign and to provide a space for the community to address the issues locally and solve the problem. The naming and shaming of exploitative corporations. There are two international aspects to what's happening here. One, of course, these palm oil companies, they're multinational. They roam the world in search of cheap land and unregulated investment climates or markets that offer subsidies for foreign investors. Palm oil blew up in Indonesia 40 years ago, but now palm oil is in every continent. Liberia and West Africa is a new destination for companies seeking to turn cheap agricultural land into palm oil plantations. It's because actually it's the same actors, it's the same financial institutions, the same companies who are doing palm oil plantation in Latin America, in Africa, and basically in Asia. And it's basically companies based in Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia. It's not one case here and one case there, but it's more systematic. And try to address the same group or the same company with consolidated data. And second, the resistance to borderless extractive capitalism is also international. Indonesian communities, like lawyer activist Andiko Mansayo, are reaching out to Liberians with the tools to resist. He has taken his understanding of the palm oil sector in Indonesia, right? its financial streams, the grievance mechanisms, the legal avenues, and Mansayo has begun building resistance networks against what's essentially the same set of problems in Liberia. Here's Mansayo. There is no border now. For example, yeah, the same company has the operation in Indonesia and Liberia. The same product, same company, only different name. Yeah? And the same product trading has the operation in Indonesia, in Asia and Africa. Yeah? And the same company still talking about the, his sustainability standard in international market. We need to make some experience cross country and cross region to establish this uh, how the same company and different area should allow about the right of food and right of uh, livelihood the community in his uh, area operation. And we bring the CBM methodology to Liberia because the Liberia has the same problem with Indonesia problem too, especially in palm oil industry. Unlike Indonesia, Liberia doesn't have an abundance of rainforest and peatlands and the potential for securing carbon. So what's being cut down to make way for palm oil in Liberia is agricultural land, the basis of livelihoods for 
ordinary rural Liberians. So this ecological difference, we suspect, is perhaps responsible for the relative lack of global attention to land grabbing by palm oil in Liberia. Thankfully, Mansayo's work is concerned with the dispossession threatening communities in both countries, and his work doesn't value rainforests and agricultural land differently, right? Because for him, it's the livelihoods, the the food security of communities that are at stake here. As we wind up this episode and this season, there is a lot to reflect upon. First, maps. As objects, they're imperfect, they're static, and yet necessary. Maps are snapshots of places frozen in time, but the reality that maps represent are constantly shifting. That new cafe around the corner, the apartment block that was once a playground that was itself once a vacant lot. And that's why maps do have to be constantly updated with satellite data, with ground truthing, community mapping. That's how we get to that mix of spatial data and social accuracy that Jacob Pepe's national convener, Imam Hanafi, talked to us about in episode three. As imperfect as maps might be, they're also not going anywhere. And what's far more galvanizing that we discovered was mapping the political process that brings communities together as they seek recognition and rights. Indonesia's experience with One Map, the initiative that was about reconciling 85 thematic maps into a single one that would contain all information about resources, tenure, concessions, permits, an initiative that's still ongoing. What it shows us is that even a system premised on data transparency cannot, does not, do away with the messiness of politics, seeking recognition, verifying and synchronizing data. I mean, these are all super time-intensive, cumbersome processes, and the people engaged in these processes are also in deeply unequal positions. Second, international governance systems. Now, these were partially responsible for creating a hospitable context for one map. But a push for data transparency was never going to be the same as confronting extractive capitalism. In fact, we can see how in Liberia, without the element of biodiversity conservation, multilateral institutions are in fact stark in their absence. No one seems to be clamoring for data transparency when there are no rainforests and carbon to secure. Third, and this is what we discussed in our final episode, monitoring offers a pragmatic next step once mapping has exhausted its advocacy possibilities. If a map is still stuck in the verification process, communities can still monitor their surroundings and they can center their perception of how landscapes are changing, the harm that's coming their way and 
who's responsible for causing that harm. So Mansayo's question, can people eat? It's a powerful one because it shows us that forcing the burden of proving harm onto communities, it's ultimately a distraction from the real question of who is impacted and whose pursuit of remedies we need to support. We started the season with mapping and we're ending with monitoring. A story arc that for us attests to that old but gold insight that solutions require shifts in thinking, that they require us to rearrange power relations, and that they force us to ask better questions. Mapping is not a silver bullet, and nor can maps be a substitute for figuring out what it is that communities really want for themselves. those dispossessed what they're fighting for and what they need and what their interests are and what is the character of their families and what futures they want to develop. That's, you know, it's a question about mapping. It's a question about tools, but it's also a question about local interests, local visions of the future. But maps can surface alternative perspectives that transcend maps' original purpose as a technology of the state the state's desire to fix people and bound resources through processes like counter-mapping. Because to map your land is akin to saying we are here. From the beginning, all of the data just like created and produced by other parties, uh, by ministries or by investment, something like that, without uh, involving the communities in the process. So sometimes the data is not valid, especially for the communities. That why uh, in the field sometimes happen just like overlapping and also land conflict in the communities. So why participatory mapping? That because when we create the data, not only come from government on other parties' perspective, but also uh, from the communities. Mapping becomes an entry point for indigenous communities like Kinipan to interrogate the status quo. 2012 mereka ada sosialisasi. Nah, ada sosialisasi sehingganya mereka the company showed its map yeah, based on the license or the concession that they obtained. And then we found out, we learned that our village is within the plantation that they are going to build yeah so that we were wondering why can outsiders map our own territory we think that we can do it ourselves why don't we do it ourselves instead of letting outsiders map our own territory even as we acknowledge the limitations of modern cartography what maps can and cannot represent Indigenous knowledge is not something that is static, right? Uh, while carto- modern cartography is kind of like that. Indigenous knowledge is fluid and dynamic. Like, for example, when I talked to a community in Kalimantan, where I did my research, they said that, oh, our territory is, as long as you can hear us 
shouting or along this river up to where we, you can see us uh, you know the south uh, our voice then that's our our territory how how you can you know translate that into a map that is then acknowledged by a standard of modern cartography is very difficult and finally the more than visual forms of knowing our landscape and the multi-species perspectives of our shared planet plants animals ecosystems but also elements rivers mountains and so forth it's a positionality that refuses to reduce stories to human only stories at the same time as it's attentive to the ways in which different human communities are positioned within racial colonial assemblages and i think it's a position that in turn makes us more perhaps responsible or accountable of our obligations towards these other than human beings um, whose existences you know in many ways make ours possible this brings us to the end of our journey thank you for listening This was Data Dialogues, a podcast that brings together multiple perspectives to look at a single issue. In this season, we looked at Indonesia's one map policy, a decade-long ongoing effort to resolve land conflict with data. We stand in solidarity with Indonesian communities' efforts to harness the power of maps for rights and recognition. To get more information about this episode including a transcript and show notes or to join the conversation head over to our website openenvironmentaldata.org or follow us on social media at openenvirodata This podcast episode was created by Madhuri Karok Michelle Chirupka Lena Silison Sahil Ansari Sally Kwan and the team at Open Environmental Data Project with theme music from the Papuan Voices documentary and other music from the Blue Dot Sessions library Data Dialogues is a project from Open Environmental Data Project where we are building spaces to grow the global conversation on environmental data access and use Thank you